love being here and also just i mean we can talk about this on the podcast but just loving the dynamism and also dedication and consistency that the two of you are showing up with and bridging you know these very esoteric and ritualistic practices into something that seems like sharp professional not even not corporate but you know like a brand and i'm like all right cool that, that's like a safe entry point even though you're going wild and deep it's like there's a safe harbor to enter that wild water so yeah huge respect and and i love journey the huge part of my life and and open world theater is about questing so yeah let's go i think there's no we can't miss let's go because this, this is all gold realistically well listeners we've got a really treat for you here uh, on the Journey podcast with Michael and Ryan, we are sitting in front and center with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Atlas Talisman. Um, welcome, Atlas. Thank you so much for uh, for creating the time to be sitting with us. Um, Ryan and I have been really excited the last couple of weeks since we've had this booked in uh, to have this open chat with you. So welcome. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah, excited to talk about the journey of life. And uh, I just respect you both as individuals. So I know that when we sit in front of each other and have this correro, um, we're going to bring forth what's needed right now. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, so we're, yeah. So whereabouts are you? Whereabouts are you at the moment? Tell us where you're at uh, with life. Where are you living? What's been going on? Where what's what's been happening? Give us a catch up. Currently in Tokyo, so I'm sitting in a place called Rapongi. And I'm working in a metaverse company. So essentially establishing physical spaces that can connect into Web3. So we're converting a hotel into a meta hub with gallery recording studio, creating residence accommodation, all that kind of thing. Uh, and also partnering with live events, with galleries. Um, so yeah, my, my world has uh, transformed into very much kind of like a, a neo-Tokyo futuristic metaverse dream, which is really exciting. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm seeing this as a chapter. Um, and we can talk sort of about my life in these segments, but I've dedicated from 40 to 45 to go corporate, um, which is an interesting kind of experience. I'm learning so much. Like it's, it's just as wild as being like a renegade hippie on the forefront, nomadic, barefoot, homeless person, which I've been. Um, yeah, it's wild and it's cutthroat. And it's just like, man, it's intense. Um, but that's kind of my phase as far as where I am. I'm dedicating, yeah, five years um, with the intention of learning all I can about the corporate structure, about the people that kind of make the moves and shift millions and billions around. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I intend to make at least a million dollars in the next five years. Um, and then I'm just tapping out and, you know, I might go out through it. Maybe there's a way to sort of continue it passively. But then I'm, I'm dedicating myself full-time back into questing and open world theater. But yeah, it's all part of the story. It's all part of the game. It's just another character. That's a, and that's something you always talk about, right? It's like playing the game, you know? Don't let the game play you, but but allow yourself to be the curator of your own life. And that's probably one of the biggest things I, I took away from working with you in open world theater. So what do you, what do you think the thread is that you can pull between these two worlds? The two worlds being open world theater and the corporate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's on the stage. You can't get off the stage. And this mm. is kind of one of the key moments. For me, open world theater or open world is a state of being. Mm. It's not a production. It's not a course. It's just simply a state of mind when you realize what is. And there's no, like open world theater can't be wrong because as, as soon as it's proven to be weak, like push that, 
and then find what is behind that. Like it's not about having a didactic, you know, methodology. It's about an inquiry into what is. And it's a state of being when you realize the truth, which of course is to some degree subjective. I'm not sure if we can find the objective truth as a, as a human being. But really what it's about is realizing the open-worldness of reality and how society itself is really just this arbitrary imposition on the wilderness of nature and possibility. And I talk about this idea of like a personal apocalypse, where even though the world might not end, maybe, you know, there's not a completely overthrow of police and government, you can have these mini moments where none of that is relevant. It could be sort of a, a, an epiphany, a spiritual breakthrough, or it might be a, a tragedy, an emergency. Maybe someone tries to mug you in a back street, or there's a fire or an earthquake, who knows what it is. But there's certain moments when you realize the fragility of what we think is our baseline safety in society. And so that's really the, the moment of open world is where you, your third eye or your mind's eye sees the invisible nature of all these funny little lines. We paint, you know, a yellow line here. We put a stop sign here. We have a, a border on the map on the atlas where it goes from red to green or, you know, all these quaint ways we try to hem in the infinite chaos of the unfathomable. And so for me, open world theater is simply a state of mind when you come to the realization of the infiniteness and you can walk in any direction and interact with anyone. And it's purely agreement. If someone agrees to let you into the house, you can go. If someone agrees to marry you, you will. If someone agrees, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, there's not necessarily even two worlds like open world theater and the corporate world are not distinct worlds. The corporate world exists within the attempt to fathom what is. And for me, I guess it's the antithesis often as far as an identity goes of who we in the you know, performing arts, in embodiment culture, in you know, activism, all this kind of stuff. We see us as opposite to this, wearing a, a shirt and tie and coming into nine to five and you know, making money for, for corporations, et cetera. So for me, it was important to not rally against something without being able to do it. Like I need to be able to be here in the boardrooms, talking to CEOs, making money, working nine to five, not even nine to five. I work like eight till 10, you know, like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. And so it's not about rallying against something from the outside. Like I need to do it. And then I can sort of pick it apart from the inside. And I am seeing the difference as far as the culture. There's a, a lot of inability to, to sit with emotions. There's no embodiment at all. Um, open communication and accountability is not a normal thing. So there, there is a huge um, you know, aspect that's you know, in a different proportion to what I'm used to and, and the usual communities I'm part of. And yet people show up here every day. And there's just this, it's not a, a personal preference. And if, if there's like conflict, you just like hold because there's this dedication. I knew that was here. And that's why I think, you know, there's that beautiful saying, those who love peace has to be as organized as those who love war. Because there's certain mechanisms of society, whether it be militaristic or corporate or governmental, institutional, all these sort of things they are very resilient and consistent. And I think due to the unnaturalness of what they're trying to perpetuate, they have to have energy to continually prop up the fallacy. That's a lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot of man hours, a lot of communication energy, all this sort of stuff. So I'm like, wow, how does that consistency and persistence happen? And I'm learning some of its passion, but some of its fear um, and, and various other things. So yeah, that's kind of my current toe dip into the world's. 
Um, and yeah, so it's it's different, but it's it's all within the same game. How are you finding stepping into this? So you've consciously created. We were talking just before the podcast that you have you've now dedicated five years of your life. So you've gone from the age of forty to forty five. You're diving in deep. You're going into the corporate world. I mean, you've you, you've you've transversed countries. You've gone into uh, this new role that you're moving into. Um, how are you finding moving from one state of where you were in community and different kind of more uh, dare I say conscious way of being and communicating and, and and relating to into this 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 more corporate structure are you finding it difficult to adapt or are you finding others around you are seeing something a bit different in you and picking up the processes from that and going hmm, can I add this into my life or is it just all a clusterfuck of chaos <laughs> oh man there's an there's an answer i want to give and there's an answer that's probably truer like i want to be like a wow atlas just walked into the corporate yeah. room and everyone started to take off their shoes and like look each other in the <laughs> eyes but no man it didn't really happen that way um to be honest like if i'm really really honest i abandoned a few practices and processes my physical fitness went out um my my habit of eating like i started drinking coffee i do not drink coffee mm. until i moved to japan and now i drink coffee like every day um the the snack culture is very like you got it you're working you're working whatever is quick and convenient um so I, I found like to be honest my my moment that kept me sane was the shower mm. i'd go into the shower morning and night switch off the lights have you know, water on me and hum and sing. And that was my little ritual moment, which sort of really was grounding and uh, and also to do with relationship as well, starting to connect in, um, building lovership here and having that sensuality. That's also a really key part for me of like maintaining that embodiment and wilderness and permission and oddity and weirdness and all that kind of stuff. So those are my two little hooks mm. uh, into what maybe what was. Um, but to a large degree, um, I feel I kind of stepped into learn and, and was changed. So it's a bit of that shapeshifter chameleon thing where it's like I, I took on a lot of the habits and it was also wanting to learn the language. Like I didn't necessarily want to come in and try and revolutionize things. I wanted to understand how it hooked in and really try and um, flow power to the power structures that are there, make sense to the executives, be respected. Because I'm already kind of like I've got, you know, these tattoos yeah. and piercings and I, I can't hide it. And also when they start to talk about like safe agreements and and corporate structures and, and stocks and this and like I, I can't fake that. So I really need to kind of just represent what I do know, which is communication, community building. Um, I, I've got a high aptitude so I can pick up these sort of things. So I, I really wanted to represent an aspect of like, no, I can fit in here. I can function in this corporate space. So to that degree, yeah, I don't think I'm fully maintained. And I had these visions, like I'd sit down and we have like a sharing circle to begin with, didn't happen. Within like literally two minutes, less, 90 seconds, of walking and entering, we're already in business mode. We didn't yep. do a breath with each other. It was just like, oh, hi, great for flying over here. Cool. So what did, 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 did And I was like, okay, okay. And trying to catch and try and sort of acclimatize. So yeah, that's it, been the case. Since it is that, um, 
I, I totally get you, totally understand. So about nine months ago, I stepped back into in engineering, which I chose to step away from for five years to pursue naturopathy and breath work and all of the holistic things and build a coaching business. And stepping stepping back into that world, it's it's exactly what you say. You you think you're going to be able to make an impact or to to use the tools that that have that you use with clients and people and all these other different situations. But to go into a situation when someone's not receptive to it at all, and it's just like not in their world, not something that they're even considered doing or a conversation that they're even having, that they've got these strict divides between like work and who they really are. Um, it does take a little bit of navigating because you go in thinking and you're like, okay, I actually have to back off. I actually have to relax. I actually have to respect this environment for what it is and not try to make it something that it's not. Yeah, absolutely. I feel it's kind of like with any kind of evolution. You know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or you look at spiral dynamics, evolution of the individual or group, you come in with that base level need. Like, have we made enough money? Uh, are people safe around each other? And I guess the money leads to shelter and food and these sort of things. Mm. Um, and then once you get through that, you can start to build the, the superstition and tribalism of your customs. And then beyond that, you can express your individuality, which maybe is where we go, hey, let's do something weird and freaky over here. But I think that at the moment, because of the stage, even though we're a big company, we've made this big transition, which is why I got a job in the first place. Mm. They're making this pivot from more of a hospitality uh, finance kind of company into more metaverse and, and Web3. Um, so it's still kind of like a startup. So there's a lot of demands. We've got a certain runway, but we have to start making revenue. And so I guess we're still in that kind of red zone um, where survival. And so it's nice to be able to sit back and talk about the universe and, and do embodiment practices. But I think that comes later once we've established our, our ground of survival together. Mm. It's, um, I mean, we're kind of very much going through the same thing with, with our startup beta, you know, because we are we are putting the tools together that have helped us get to where we are. However, we're packaging them up in a way that can be received in a more, uh, what would you say, a more mainstream way, I guess. And, and, and I guess our theory is it doesn't matter how you get through the door, just get through the door and then you can unload. And so this is where you know, taking our practices and our tools and things like that, we're very aware of the, of the, of the dialogue, of the language that we are using, of how it looks, of how it, I mean, it's just playing the game and it's learning the rules, right? It's learning the rules to use the rules to your own advantage. And then you can obviously then create your rules once you, once you can start clocking parts of the game. I mean, that's kind of life. I mean, that's open world. That's, you know, like we are all in the constructs of this ever-changing evolutionary matrix world that we are in. So don't sit idly by. You want to get involved in something, we'll learn the damn rules. You know, you're not going to jump into a game and go, I'm not going to know how to play, but then I'm going to try and take it over. So I really understand what you're saying in that context. But I just want to pull it back a bit. How do you find that you so quickly fell into that state of, I've never drank coffee, now I'm drinking coffee? Is that a personal discipline thing that potentially might have dropped? Or is that just... I am just so surrounded, even by such a strong conscious man like yourself, I'm so surrounded by by such things that are all accepted as a mass that you just fell straight into it. And then now you're drinking coffee, you're not eating properly, you are, you know, whatever else you're doing. Was that a personal thing? Or do you think that was actually something you consciously went into? 
I think it's definitely a kink. Like mm. I remember reading a book called J-Pod by, I think it's Douglas Cooland. And I love, there's one character who's like normcore. So he just like is anonymous. He wears a, a nondescript suit. And I, I want to have the full experience. So it's mm. like, I want to be in the corporate. I want to drink the coffee. I want to wear the, like I wear a suit or like at least a shirt every day. Not even everyone in the office does. But, but I do. And it's kind of like, it's this idea of like, I want the experience. Also being here in Japan, it's like snack culture is huge. There's all these cute little packages and like, like puddings and jellies and chips and this and that. And so, yeah, for me, it's a, a matter of like, I know what it's like to eat organic and to be fast. I mean, I'm still doing, you know, juicing and stuff like that. I've got my juices right here. So I do balance it out and I know how to, you know, refresh and keep myself grounded. Um, but I think it's a, a, a conscious choice um, to have the full experience. Um, and I, I think whether I know it directly or not, I'm also in some subconscious or super conscious way, unaware that I've made a decision to kind of lose myself in the game and then come out of the maze. It's like you're just prepping for a role, right? You're prepping for, it's the character you're going into. You're going into this corporate character. You're going all in. So how, 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 do, you, how do you remove self-judgment? How do you remove self-guilt and shame and things like that for, for, for processes you've created in yourself to keep you at a level so long that are so ingrained into you and all of a sudden you're going, no, I'm going to just jump into this character now. So what, what's the processes to keep the judgment away? Just the scope of life man the scope mm. of life like i want to slide over the finish line of life and i'm just absorbed and soaked and like the gutter and the palace you know like i want to have pixie dust and shit i just want like the, the mm. full scope so i don't need to come through as a yogi who's shining and this and that because that's just one aspect of the full human experience so yeah i i love as long as i know that i'm I'm able to create something new we we feel the victim when it's like i can't get out of this i'm coming down whereas i know that i can stop eating this mm. or that in an instant and so i think that that's a key part of it is just just adoring the full kind of spectrum and scope but i think another really key thing particularly with open world the training is preparation for the moment of life and so it's creating a foundation where you can go in any direction you're extremely dexterous and flexible when you're called to action it might be a split second moment maybe someone pulls a knife on you or a tiger leaps out or you've got to save someone from under a bus so you might just have to do it for a few seconds or it might be a long pilgrimage it's like cool for the next year you need to go and do this and so it's not you don't need to train while you're living you train in preparation to meet the moment. And for me, this is just the moment. So I've been doing all that discipline. I've been doing all that good eating. I've been doing that sleeping and living in organic so that I can actually have a foundation, which maybe will be eroded to some degree over a year or two. But I've kind of got that backup reserve because of the training to, to reach this moment. Oh, it feels good. It, it, like it's super inspiring. I love sitting and chatting with you, you know, like your, your, the articulation that you can create with your words and your energy and, and, and your magic. It, 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 it's, and, and this is why I've been so excited to have you on the podcast and have our listeners just, just hear these words as well, because it's so relevant. It seems so simple, right? It seems so simple. I mean, we all talk about, it's all our own choices, all our own creations, you know, all our own self-imposed prisons and, and our own ceilings. Right. And so but you're also cultivating the ability to step into character roles through your training. And I think that's a big key, right? It's, it's, it's the training for life for life. Because 
when you're just in the constant training, then are you actually stepping into the life for what you're training for? Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, and I, okay. I, it was just a, it was just a little, little drop in as, as you were speaking. And it, it, it's so relevant. I'm going through kind of, uh, I have been going through, you know, kind of something similar in the last few months myself, just this highly dedicated discipline, action, mind, you know, going through the 75 hard and various other things. And obviously we've got a startup and things like that and, 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 and starting relationships and holding friendships and all the good things, you know, and cultivating these new characters that we're stepping into. However, it's, it's the, the, the tether that I'm holding on to when i'm actually in the moment going oh wait a minute i'm not doing these things but however that was the training for the thing so it's a mm-hmm. it was a beautiful drop in brother i appreciate that oh, beautiful thanks for catching mm, yeah yeah it is beautiful so tell us a little bit about what you are actually doing in japan like what is it that you guys are building so you say that you're building something web three um for a hotel industry like what does that even entail some people won't even know what web three is so let us dive deep into yeah, yeah cool so if you look at the evolution of the internet i think it's really interesting that we as human beings create tools commensurate with our spiritual and cognitive ability to fathom them like before we could fathom fire i don't think we could have created the tool to spark it before we could imagine a wheel we probably couldn't fathom the the carving tools to carve it out mm-hmm. however we you know evolved And so I think that right now we are starting to understand our capacity as a hive mind and a collective to access the Akashic field or the dream time. And that collective dreaming has now manifested into cloud computing. And we're starting to understand the idea of translocation. So being able to be in more than one place at once. And, you know, the the word avatar has been around in various spiritual practices, particularly in the East for a long time. And so it's kind of like the West has started to be able to fathom this collectively, this idea of telepathy and representation of different bodies and the collective dreaming. And so we've been able to now develop tools and technology to enable us to have that shared experience. So that's kind of, I think, what we're doing with Web3. If you look at the history of it, it's happened over the last several decades, coming from the idea of a, a bunch of you know servers, like computer program uh, terminals that connect over various distances. And then we had Web1, which is the idea of more of a one-way communication, like a a bulletin board, and you could read from it. You couldn't really add to it. And then we've got Web 2, which is what we're in today, which is this dynamic, shifting, you know, read and write system. And then Web 3 is more about ownership. So I guess like one of the key aspects or or, um, defining factors of Web 3 is decentralization and distributed networks. So it's the idea of rather than having like a big daddy who's holding all the data for us, like Amazon or Google or Meta or whoever. Um, Instead, there's duplicates of the data and it's held by the users. So it's peer to peer. Mm. So the idea is that there is no one node, there's no one overarching Lord. Instead, we do the functions ourselves and that's decentralization. So there's copies of all the, um, the databases and then distributed networks means that not one you know, big organization has to do all the functions, but we distribute the roles out as we do in community, like one person's a baker, one person's a farmer. And so the same thing with computing of you can do this part, you can do that part, etc. And so it comes to the idea of edge computing as well, which basically means that rather than having to take all the user data to some far off place to do the computing, you bring the computing closer to the user. So it's a lot quicker. And so that means, you know, your friend might be running part of the operating system. So that's kind of a key definition definition of web three it's decentralized it's got a distributed operating system um, and there's ownership 
provable, verifiable ownership. And that comes through just having various standards um, and open records, like an open ledger, which is what a blockchain is. It's just this open uh, log of all the transactions that everyone can see. And then you've got these things, which digital assets called non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Um, and that's how you can sort of start to own these things. It could be a node, it could be a contract, it could be an artwork, whatever it is. So it's, it's kind of like being paid to use the internet. You know, you become a key person in the infrastructure of running it. It's taking more responsibility. Um, it's a shift financially away from the, the big, you know, money industry, um, which is privately owned. And instead, we have DeFi or decentralized finance so that we actually get loan money to each other and we benefit from the system, which only a few men, you know, their secret handshake clubs have been having until now. So that's really kind of what Web3 means to me. But it's not just about technology. It's also about the real world. And the future is a smart world. So it's like, you know, your smart fridge, your smart car, your smart house, et cetera. It also goes to things like artificial intelligence. It also goes to things like genome editing and the biomedical field and cyborgism. And, you know, so like there's a lot of contentious issues. I think that any tool that's used for freedom can also be used for enslavement. So I understand the, the dangers of a cashless society. I understand the dangers of playing God and kind of, you know, having transhumanist, um, you know, part cyborg kind of entities and that sort of thing. But, you know, I want to be right here because it's, it's pivotal and I want to surf the wave. I think that's a key mm. part is often in order to feel safe, we want to control and often in order to control, we need to generate ourselves. So it's like, I only want to do something I can make. And I'm going to basically kill everything down so that I can then issue forth my law. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of an old way of trying to work. You want to have sick slaves. You want to not educate people. You want to poison the water. And so you reduce everyone so you can actually issue something forth. For me, that's a cowardly way to live. Instead, I know that there are greater things than me. And so I learn how to be the clown and I surf the chaos and I go on this way. You don't have to generate because that's not sustainable. You'll become exhausted if you're making everything yourself all the time. Instead, there's great forces at play. The Dharmic River, there's, uh, there's nature, there's all the things we can't even fathom that are pushing things forward. And I think an undeniable wave is the fourth industrial revolution. And the interesting thing, this is also pushed by like the World Economic Forum and uh, all these people that maybe would be, you know, the bad guy in, in, in Star Wars or whatever. Um, and that's a cool thing is like, well, all this money and all this marketing and all these big, important people are pushing forward this thing, but it's kind of they're playing catch up. The hacker phone freak kind of community developed blockchain and all these kind of hacker tools. And then they realized how powerful they are. It wasn't that they were against crypto with all this like regulation and law and, and black PR. They just didn't like that we had it. So now the big industries are starting to work out how to kind of own it. And they're pushing things called CBDCs or central bank digital currencies yeah. and trying to work out how we can have, you know, DIDs or de um, decentralized identities and, and all this sort of stuff. So for me, I'm like, okay, you guys are pushing this because you've got this, this uh, agenda. I'm going to surf in on that. And I want to be right on the crest of that wave as I watch this next industrial revolution of our, of our species occur. Mm. What would you say to people who are fearful of, of what you're talking about right now? You know, cause there's a lot of, <clears throat> there's a polarity in that, right? There's an absolute deep polarity in the fear of, the control of the decentralization of the of the non uh, cashless society of the of the cashless society sorry 
you know, I mean, you're front and center and you have been for a long time. This is, this is, you know, it's, it's been beautiful to watch this as your Dharma, just constantly being in and surfing that wave. So what would you say to people who would completely disagree with you? Would you go, no, Atlas, a cashless society is terrible. Um, the, uh, the, the bigger systems, BlackRock and all these buying up all of the, the crypto and bombing it out and doing all that and, and shaking all the things up and causing all this friction and then creating a, a stance through the media that all this is terrible. What would you say to these people who completely only understand what you're talking about through the narrative of a negative concept through, uh, through negative storytelling through a media uh, blockade? I'm going to say two things. I think that more communication results in more feeling, which results in more sentience. Mm. And that, I believe, results in yeah, consciousness uh, and a wisdom based on experience. So it doesn't really matter to me what gets put on the communication lines. If the communication lines are established so that there's more peer-to-peer -peer communication, we've got more strong devices in our hands, which can record things and, and, and communicate to each other. Um, we've got more transparent ledgers of what's going on. And we've got more sensors and actuators, meaning things that can receive signals from the world, real world and then actuate or act on the real world to have this physical digital bridge. Like it's, it's just like activating your central nervous system. So we mm. as a species are, are building a neural network across the world. Mm. Now, of course, people would want to control that neural network. But I believe in the human heart and human humanity and our sentience that will grow through communication and the empathy that will come from having this translocational reality, this haptic feedback. So like your know, vibrations and your senses, olfactory, tactile, taste, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I just think it must lead to more understanding and more love. Like that's mm. just kind of what I think. Even if you try and warp it, it's, it's stronger. Like human beings are not the masters of the universe. You know, there's fundamental things which are inalienable from us. And I think these inalienable medicines like, you know, oxygen, like sex, like certain things of tobacco or cacao and these kind of things, um, they were so powerful that they were either outlawed or they were trying to be co-opted by creating mm. fast food versions of them through <laughs> porn or through fast food or through whatever is the being poisoned kind of thing. So it doesn't matter how you know big your wallet is or how manipulative your military psychological warfare tactic is. You're not more powerful than the underlying irrepressible human spirit. Mm. And so that's kind of why I'm okay is because let's communicate and we as a population are going to wake up and have more consciousness and more love. So that's kind of the first answer. The second answer is I'm not really for anything. Mm. I'm not a proponent or champion in anything. I'm just trying to face what is. Mm. And so that is a key part of my personal practice in open world theater. This is happening. Not because I want it to happen. Not because I convinced my friend to buy Bitcoin. This is happening. Look around you, look at the progress, look at the AI on your feed, look at where the news is, look at where the money is, look at where the technology, this is evolution, it's happening. So you can resist it, or you can come to terms with it. And I think that conservationists, people that want to preserve what is, 
And there's a lot of green-sided left-wing people that are conservationists. If you look at the emotional tone scale, conservation and conservatism are the same kind of level. You want to keep things as they are. Stop, stop, no, no. And so I think that is not a life force of creation. When you start to go beyond conservatism, aka conservation, sometimes things do go extinct. But you know, life and death are a part of this existence. And I think that through our particular particular um, Overton's window or our window of tolerance to understand what can be, we have a very limited perspective. It could be a few hundred years. When you look at the geological timeline and the huge pendulum swing of creation and destruction, mm. there's always going to be death and there's always going to be entire paradigm shifts away from what we comfortably know and are familiar with. And that is humility. It's humility to go with the flow. And this is maybe also the juxtaposition between being the author of your life and always causatively creating. I think that there's also a room for humility and going with the flow and surrendering to something greater. And through that surrendering to greatness, you inherit the greatness. And it's exciting and it's liberating. And I do believe that everything we are robbed of is not essential to us. So even though in the coming age, you know, and they say, oh, you will own nothing and you will love it. It's like, it doesn't matter the manipulative tactics. If you go in life full, you're going to be surfing the wave of what is and nothing that is essential to you can be taken away from you. So it's just part of, I'm not sure if you've found this but some of the most liberating moments in my life has been some of the most desperate mm. we as human beings thrive in tragedy our best qualities come out in emergency and accident uh, scenes and and catastrophe yep. so it's just kind of like we are these seeds like in the australian bush that need the fire to blossom like let's stop trying to always frame it as another the baddie we're in a game and we need the villain and we need the hero and so much of our mental capacity is pointed in the direction of trying to understand and trying to control and then trying to resist. It's like so much of that energy can be put towards learning how to surf the wave better. And so that's what I would say as a second part to that question is it's not something I'm championing. I'm just trying to say, this is what I perceive is. It's absolutely creating in the moment, right? That's that's one of your main teaching philosophies is find the opportunity in the moment and seek for it. And if it's not there, then you can create it. And there's the aliveness that will come alive, you know, from your own essence, from the the championing of your own ancestry, of your of your uh, of your own creation of what's in front of you. You know, you can have the most. Um, you can have the most indescribable subjective life moment by staring out at the window and being completely bored, right? If you choose to. And mm. so I really, I really enjoy that, that, that two-parter answer because I think a lot of people, and especially now it's that fear dialogue, right? It's that control. I need to control, I need to control because it's a fearful of what's going. And I mean, us as a human race, we are escalating at such light speed, you know, faster than we ever have before. And I think, you know, for most people, it's a very scary situation to be in because there's, there's absolute shaking, but you're totally right. I mean, some of the best creative pieces of art, creative pieces of poetry, songs have come out of depth of heartbreak, have come out of depth of sadness and sorrow um, of death. And this is where we can create from 
death. It's the seed germinating from the fire. It's the phoenix rising up from the ashes. It's the death and rebirth at the same edge of the coin because they are the same thing. You cannot have rebirth without death and you cannot have a death without a rebirth. It's the cycle of the human spirit that keeps being recycled. And I think we're going more and more into the amnesia of losing that. It's going more and more and more. However, there's a there's a subset of of humans at the moment that are that are rising faster and faster as well. And that keeps growing too, you know, through the, you know, air quote awakening, I guess, you know. And I think conversations like this and hearing viewpoints from people like yourself and us who are just in the trenches of creating and enjoying life. I mean, I've never felt so aligned in my entire life, you know, but yet I've gone through some of the hardest shit I've ever gone through in my entire life. But it's 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 the it's the rebirthing and the death cycle, you know, and it's almost like fucking bring it on you know like what what next you know like and and i guess it's the it's the the acceptance of the burning for you to trust in that going through it will be the other side because most people can't see the other side when they are looking through the flames they can't see the other side when they see a brick wall although there's always going to be something there but the trust, I think it's the deep trust in ourselves. And we're kind of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a massive down of it. And especially going through the COVID situation and going through all of that, that deep controlling through governmental processes. And then obviously through some countries militarized and, and, and certain countries did better than others. And, 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 and whatever spectrum is whatever you think is better. Right. And so when you're walking through that, you feel like you can be unstoppable. And so moving into this, this metaverse web three and, and, and all into what you're dealing with, I think it's a, it's a pioneering aspect. You're kind of like the, the, the new age Viking and going into, to, to new and, and conquering new countries, you know, you're, you're, you're going and, and, and just being on your own boat that you've built, surfing that wave or taking that ocean and just going to the horizon, trusting that you will find something. And if you don't, well, death is just as beautiful. Yeah, the cyber Vikings. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So, so life in Japan, brother. What's life in Japan like? I mean, you, how long have you been there for now? Uh, almost six months. Okay, cool. And and obviously a big culture change. So, what are the what what, what what's it like in the day to day life there? One of the things you really notice is the communal sense of diligence but also obedience mm. so you go on the trains and they're packed like people literally squashing in and being pushed but there's no emotional reaction there's no insult it's just like people smashing into each other no one talks no one it's just this very kind of placid um there's no imposition in your personal space. So people, are, they feel like they're in the bedroom. They'll be just looking at whatever. There's no, it doesn't seem to be any sense of um, being embarrassed about anything. They're not here so to kind entertain of like, you. <laughs> no, no, they're not here to entertain you at all. Sometimes that can feel um, negligent. So if, for example, because there's all this kind of structure and, and obedience, then in the evening people will be drinking and you'll see probably a higher percentage than in other cities where there'll be people stumbling around or throwing up or lying on the floor and that kind of thing um outside of the the usual paradigm of work hours 
but people also just walk around them or not pick them up or it's kind of like you're left to your own devices in, in both the positive and the negative sense. But the, the beauty I've found, so everyone here wears masks like all the time. It doesn't matter if you're out in, in public, if you're in a car by yourself, if you're riding a bike at middle of the night along a highway, always, always, always mask, 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 mask. And I've started to feel like, you know, that's just the thing to do. Sometimes they stipulate you have to, if you go into a restaurant or this or that, you have to do it. But also this, this sense of togetherness. And I really get the sense of why it's like an usness. And so in the beginning, I was like, oh no, I don't want to wear it if I'm just out. It doesn't make sense to me. But then more and more, I started to see those who didn't, didn't. And there's this really elegant way. It's almost like this herd moving together, this quiet um, way of just not imposing and not needing to be noisy, not needing to be heard. And I saw the people that were not wearing it were gaijin, like me. So gaijin means outside person and it's foreigner. And so I'd be like, ah, oh, you're there. You're not respecting the space you've got. No, you're not reading the room. You're being loud. You're not wearing a mask. And so I wanted to be more like one of us, one of us. You know, I wanted to be a bit more local because I'm living here now long-term. And so I'm like, oh, no, cool. Like, it's kind of like observing a cultural thing. So it shifted away from observing a governmental ordained kind of medical edict. It came more like a, a custom. And I know that even before the lockdowns, the idea of having these medical masks was actually around for, for decades here. Um, just if you were sick, it was like this, oh, I don't want to make you sick, so I'll, I'll wear it. So it's kind of a continuation of something that was here for a long time. So that's kind of an interesting part is learning how to disappear, which actually works with open world theater. I want to become no one. I want to be this instrument that can be used for any character and to meet the moment in any way possible. So Japan is, is helping humble me, working as a team, understanding the effortless way that people give up everything in themselves and become neutral. Like there's a lot of, actually people wear black mostly. There's not, there's not that whole kawaii kind of crazy Harajuku fashion as much as you might think. A lot of it is quite conservative and all wearing black and, you know, as they call them, the salary men. And everyone looks fairly similar in the way that they dress and behave and everyone's been masking. It's very kind of quiet. So that really is a lot of, uh, a lot of my, my experience here. Um, long hours, but it's kind of very Japanese as well to work long hours. Um, and there's a, an interesting disconnect that I think that Westerners seek is the personal connection. It might partly be because I'm not Japanese, but it also because I see that in other people, there's not a lot of emoting going back and forth in public. And so sometimes you'll, you'll go and you'll be asking for something to be, to be bent or an exception to the rule. And it's not like in the West where you might get someone who's a bit snarky or spicy as goes, ah, ah, and you feel the fire protecting the boundary. There's just this neutrality of like, no, that's not going to happen. Like, no. And you, you try and push and then they just like direct you somewhere else. And like, there's, there's nothing to even wrestle with. Like, no, like they're just like calm, but this is not happening. And it's just very clear that the rules will be obeyed. And you see that also ha happening in, in places where, say, for example, the red man crossing the road, doesn't matter if it's the middle of the night and there's no cars, people will wait until it turns green, then they go. And so that's kind of been one of my adjustment phases uh, and trying to deprogram my own Western judgment of that and my you know rebellion and I want to be wild and free and natural mm. and and coming to terms with the fact that I feel alienated, that I don't necessarily feel a, a human connection, but then it's just learning a new rule set 
So, okay, I can't, I can't bend this with, with communication. I can't convince you to change. So now I just have to learn the rules and kind of work within that. And if you can make it work within the rules, there's no judgment. If you can sort of jump over the fence and climb over a thing and wear a red nose and do a thing, like as long as it's within the rules, there's also this very kind of non-judgmental, placid kind of like, okay, that's within the rules. I don't care if you're you know naked running around backwards, as long as that works within the, the particular setting that we're going to. And you know, same thing, going to onsens, you know, everyone's naked and and so it's not always conservative, but in that context it's normal and so it's totally fine you can do whatever you want or like i said late at night people drinking drinking and rolling over the road and throwing up within the context of that suburb at that time of night it's totally fine so you can kind of do anything you go to like adult stores and there's like these big like sex shops with like blow up dolls and all this kind of kawaii hentai and it's like intense but that's that area for that. So it's totally fine. You know, so that's what I'm learning is just find the space where it's within the rules and then go wild. It's so interesting. It sounds like it's like a hive mind. It's like a hive mind. Everyone just plays the part for whatever the part is in the moment. Yeah, it's amazing. Really disciplined. And I think it's the only way. So this is the most populous city in the world, most populous metropolis. Um, I think it's upwards of 36, 37, 38 million people. So I think that's the only way it works is that right from an early age, there's this sense of community vision and responsibility. The, the roads are spotless. Like there's no rubbish. There's hardly any graffiti at all. There's no crime. Everyone just parks their bikes without being locked to a pole. Like it's really amazing. It's very safe, very clean. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a whole other way of, of living and it brings a love for me into diversity and it brings a love for me into difference between nationalities and races and time periods. And it's like, it's different. It's, we're not all the same, <laughs> like we're not all the same, but it works really well. And I've got to kind of defragmentize what I think it means. It doesn't mean anything other than what it is. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's definitely very different. There's something different here on an energetic level on a mental level uh, and it's like it's deeply ingrained a, a shift and it's amazing to learn it you you could easily look into that idea of control right and looking into like well these people have no personality they have, they have nothing else going on they're just sticking to the rules and listening to what the government says they're not going to question anything outside of of the reality that's being created for them but it sounds like what you're saying though it's not even about that. It just is what it is. And to read into it is actually just taking away from the experience. It's taking that Western mindset of and the idea of how I think things should be and understanding and the way in which we grew up with freedom and personality and expression and emotion in any situation, you know, even if it is breaking the rules, but it's just like, no, this is what they do. They respect the rules and they're happy with it. You either respect the rules or you get told to respect the rules yeah and i i cannot say what it is yeah. of course like I, I'm, I'm i'm only here for six months there's no way i can give an accurate you know summary of what japan life is or what the psychology of the culture is i don't even speak the language like i can't all mm. i can do is kind of my experience of it um and yeah that's that's right in my face and the first thing that occurs as a gaijin as to the, the life day-to-day -day life here how are you finding with your tattoos? Because I know 
Uh, I remember watching one of your stories and you were trying to find a gym that actually allowed them in. So, so how are you, how are you navigating that? And, 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 and what's the, what's the reaction for, for showing up with tattoos? I mean, obviously I've got a couple as well, you know, like it's, um, what's the whole, whole prognosis of all of that? Once again, there's, there would never be any outright rudeness about it, Mm. but you just simply can't go to certain places. Mm. So it's just like, Oh, this, so like, oh, sorry, like, no, you can't come in here. And so, yeah, like, that's the sort of thing when you're here, it's not that you'll be told off, but you just will lose access to certain things or so, certain people, you know, won't come back to a meeting or, um, you know, just be politely declined. And it, it's quite extreme. Like one gym that I was going to, they were asking me, well, how I was going to sort of cover up and I'd have to cover everything. So I'd have to have gloves. I'd have to have you know, neck, I don't quite know how it would work. I was like, all right, cool. I can make this work. Like I'll cover everything. And they're like, okay, but what happens in the change room? Mm. I was like, what do you mean? It's like, if you're in the change room and someone sees you with tattoos, they can ask for you to be kicked out. I was like, oh, can I change in a toilet? And they said, "Mm, there's no toilet right next to the pool. So it was like right down to the thing of like, you've got to design a plan where no one will ever see your tattoos at no stage of you being in the building. So it's just like surgical. Um, and I couldn't work out. It just wouldn't be possible to be like in a hijab and, and working out just like <laughs> at all times. I was like, no, I can't. Okay, fine. I won't want to be in. I'm like, oh, sorry. And I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, there's no outward aggression. Um, and I'm continuing to, you know, it's interesting actually with tattoos because it was so frowned upon because it was associated with the Yakuza. There are these, there's a lot of sort of banning of it. And um, now there's sort of softening in certain areas, but the, the tattoo artistry hasn't been very well established here. So yeah, it's not quite as, as prolific or evolved as an art form that you would see in other spaces, even though ironically Japanese bodysuits and, and that particular um I forget the name of it, but it's a particular style um, is, is one of the most popular, particularly at the moment, it's really fashionable. So it's this ironic thing of like Japanese tattoos are popularized outside of Japan, but inside Japan um, in a popular sense, like if you just Google search, I've, I've looked at lots of different uh, studios and that sort of thing. And it's not, yeah, the traditional high level side. So you probably just can't access it unless you're, you've got direct access to the lineage of it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the experience of tattoos, but you do see a few out there, but I'd say probably literally two to 5% of people, um, would be tattooed or wearing colorful things and the rest is just not really present. Sounds like such a crazy place. It sounds like a place I just, I, I want to explore and just see everything you're talking about and just being told politely, Hey, look, you're not allowed to come in here and just be like, wow, this is what he was talking about. It makes no, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Getting humbled, getting humbled. Yeah. Everywhere you go. Restaurants or even like renting to people. It's like, oh, no, sorry, we don't rent to foreigners. Oh, no, sorry, no foreigners can come in here. And it's like in other countries, that's like segregation is highly racist. But here's yeah. just like, no, sorry, no foreigners. Like, wow. But I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a white male. Like I, I've got plenty of privilege. I'm not upset that I'm like being, you know, have this against me. I've had a pretty good run. Um, so I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not crying in the corner, but it exists unapologetically cherry faced segregation and racism. It's just like, mm. no, sorry. So brother, tell us, tell us what you're doing. Um, so you're deep into, you know, your mental health and obviously helping people and going through all of that. Um, so, 
I mean, it's been such a big part of you. How are you finding that you're not an able to be of service like you were? Um, you know, obviously moving into this this character role of going into the corporate and and learning all of that. How is it? How is it not being in service to others? And how is it to not be as in service to yourself right now? Yeah, really good question. <clears throat> and um, the simple answer is knowing that I am in service in a different BPM, a different mm. beats per minute, different time signature. And I think this is one of the things that we have been drawn into is this almost ADHD need for the dopamine hit. And it's, it's a huge dopamine I mean, if I'm doing workshops every week and I've got people crying in my arms and people having breakthroughs, I'm like, I am good. I am good. And that's not why we do it, obviously. No, but some of our ego is fed by that. You're right. And we know that we're being of service and it's really, really lovely. However, that has a very short term cycle. You know, sometimes long term things take a long time to, to gestate and to build. And so I, I really, and I'm having to remind myself of this. Mm. And you can sometimes compromise and, and justify why you're not being of service or you're not walking a purposeful path because you go, oh, it's leading to something down, down the track and maybe you'll never get down the track and you just completely go wayward. But I, I believe that with this particular window of five years, I can learn enough organizational skills. I can build enough relationships with high up executives across many different industries. I can learn what it means to get investment and the legal parts of that and, and also working with, you know, a very um, litigious and, and discerning and pedantic kind of legal and corporate structure in Japan is like very discerning. So it's kind of raising the level of what I need to do as a business, as an entrepreneur to get things across the line, learning some uh, consistency, even if it's not always feeling right. Um, those are the kind of things that I know it's building up in me with the clear thing that, you know, once I'm 45, it's got to lead straight right back to, to questing and to open world and all that sort of thing. So that is why, even though I'm not getting the feedback that I'm being of service, I think it's just like the next level up. Cause I could keep on that same uptick of weekly or monthly or seasonally, doom, 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 doom. but it's kind of only creating seasonal gains or weekly gains or daily mm. gains. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to establish over these five years. Yeah. I guess even, even in the, in the, in the serviceability of others, like we can still get trapped in a story right? There can still be an ego attached to it. And I guess it's just honoring that as well, because there's ego in everything, you know, like Ryan and I speak about it all the time. It's, um, you know, everyone goes, oh, we're going to get the ego death, ego death. And it's not even about an ego death. It's, it's an ego integration, actually. It's the it's the the programmed death of different things that don't serve you now through based past experiences and traumas and things like that. You know, that's the death and the rebirth of yourself, of your own power. But even, I mean, there, there, there can still be too much of a good thing right you know there can still be a story in in whatever we're doing and um and so sitting in in your basis there we can actually create service in anything that we're doing you can be in service because you are turning up to a job that you fucking love and you feel like you're making change in the world going through this this different surfing of this new age viking you know digital viking age that you're moving into right and so it's uh i guess it's the cultivation and curation of your mindset of what it is that you are doing who are you in that moment and who are you that you're showing up as? And so your serviceability can absolutely be to that. It's to the, it's to the corporation, it's to Japan, it's to this new newfound way of being within this culture. It can be the service of understanding the rules and not being the Gaijian 
of where you are. It's still going, I will wear my mask regardless of where I think I, I need to be a rebel because that's actually the, the service of the others around me because that's how I need to fit in here. Yeah, definitely. I feel it's also knowing where you need to be put. I think that uh, we've all got a different cut. You know, our, our composition and our tendencies, our inclinations, the things we find pleasurable or painful are very different. And I think we're made for certain roles. And I'm definitely made for the frontier. Um, I'm, I can go in cold temperature or hot temperature. I can not eat or I can eat a lot. Like there's a certain thing that I find quite pleasurable that other people don't. And so it's like, oh, I'm kind of made for this kind of environment. So I guess whenever I feel that there's a certain mass movement in a particular area, I'm like, well, what's the periphery of that? If there's enough people doing X, Y, Z, maybe the embodiment stuff I was doing or whatever it is, is that, all right, cool, well, where else can I be then? Because there's a lot of people here now, so I'm going to try and position myself elsewhere. So that's kind of part of it. And then I think it's balancing our personal quest and our group quest and knowing that we need to continue to evolve personally in order to fulfill our roles to the group. So sometimes, yeah, it might be a matter of not showing up to be of service so you can go away and do that work and chip away at yourself and become this next version of yourself. Um, and so I think that's a, a key part because a lot of my teenage years, I rallied against the alpha male. Um, I didn't want to seem masculine. I had really long hair. I would wear all these different colorful and tight clothes. I would kind of experiment with makeup or I just like try and be kooky and weird and not like play footy and fix cars. Like I didn't want to be that kind of archetype. Um, and a big part of the last few years has been integrating that. It could be the dark masculine. It could be being more commanding in a, in a romantic and relationship setting, able to guide and protect and and direct things. Money has also been a big part of that evolution the last couple of years. And it actually came out of the pain of a previous relationship where I felt very emasculated and unable to provide. And I, but I wanted it so much. And I'd had that same pain come up in many relationships, but there was something about this recent relationship that made me just hold on and face the inadequacy, my inability to provide. And I was like, oh, I don't. And usually I would just like bounce the other way. But this one had a magnetism that I wouldn't avoid. And I sat and it broke me down and it was very humiliating, but it mm -hmm. was a catalyst. And I was like, that's it. I'm sorting this out. I'm going to become money obsessed and work this thing out. And over the last couple of years, it's a completely different story. You know, the, the income bracket and the people I'm around and the resources I have access to and all that sort of thing. So it's just my personal evolution to become more integrated. Um, which maybe I'm also tending to at the moment. Mm. It's a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful, I think the world needs more of that as, as men to step into masculinity. We speak about it a lot. You know, the world needs more leadership. The world needs more healed masculinity. It's the, and, and, and it's removing that judgment or the, the, the chase of money as a bad thing. It's, it's a provider. It's an energy. It's a, it's a, it's a something you suffered through to obtain. You've sacrificed your time. You've sacrificed, sacrificed something to get that it's a sacrifice it's a it's a it's an old it's an old archaeological you know analog from biblical times of sacrifice right you know you're sacrificing now for a better future you know you're turning yourself into and bringing and cultivating your future self into it how did you find how did you find that you started when you when you sat in that that that, that, that humiliation of realizing that you weren't the leader or you weren't didn't have the capability to provide for not only your partnership or relationship at the time, but potentially yourself and others around you, or, you know, how did you really 
feel? What was the depth that you went into in that embarrassment? And then how did you kind of work through it to, to step into more masculinity? Discomfort, I think, is a key indicator of what we're avoiding. I don't think that actuality is that uncomfortable. I don't think that life's experiences are that painful or horrible. The discomfort and the pain is really the thing we're resisting and avoiding and not actually facing up into. So, yeah, I, I was listening to one podcast about Chinese medicine saying that the only pathology or malady in the world is the resistance or blocking of the life force. Mm. And so for me, it just became so uncomfortable. And I, like I said, this relationship held me in the fire. Like I didn't want to run away. I didn't want to break up. I didn't know, you know, I wanted to listen to this person's worth because I wanted to be loved by them. And so that was it really. I just stayed in the discomfort, stayed in the discomfort, just stayed in the discomfort. And eventually you've got these different forces goading you, you know, like a cattle prod. And one is goading you back into comfort and your familiarity and the other is pushing you out. And it would just got loud enough and more uncomfortable enough in that one direction that I went through the other discomfort of avoidance to simply um, take, a, take an action. I think that often we're too cognitive and cerebral. We try and forecast what will be. We look at all the pros and cons and we kind of solve it or talk ourselves out before we take action. I love this idea of extending our mind into the physical world and letting our mental mechanics be fulfilled by mechanics beyond us. It might be another person. It might be force of nature and gravity. It might be luck and money comes in or comes out, whatever it is. But I didn't need to solve it. I just I actually got some help from friends who are coaching me. And it kind of leads back to a game that I'm, I'm designing called Vicarious, where I let an online player play me. And it was a little bit like that with my coaches. They just said, like, you're doing this. And I was like, okay. And I just decided to do like oh, one foot in front of the other and do that. And I, mm. I you know, got a, room, a house for myself. I was paying rent. I also analyzing subtle decisions you've made. Many, many years ago, I decided I'm never going to pay rent again. And that kind of held, which means I ended up living in either on friends' couches or having, you know, I'd, I'd be on site when I was making festivals um, or I live in my parents' garage. And it just perpetuated for years and years and years because it, I, I hated the idea of just wasting money towards someone else without owning a space. So I had to, I had to directly go against that and break my rule by putting bond down and paying rent. Uh, and that was in, in West Auckland, England, you know, the place. And so, yeah, that, that kind of shift was another one. It was breaking my own kind of rules. Um, yeah, that, that, that was kind of what got me there. And so I think for me, that's a key thing is just like little, feel into discomfort and imagine you could have no avoidance. I think that's the only way to be open in life mm -hmm. is that you can actually be with and breathe and face any aspect of existence. So I think it's a really great process is simply the, I mean, it's not to say like punish yourself constantly and just be like doing all the horrible things in the world. But I do think that there's some discernment needed when we are always trying to go for, for comfort. Um, and it's a really easy practice. Just look at all the things you're avoiding and go and experience it to know that you can. Sure. Something that I always talk into is it's, it's not so much about the pain. It's actually the contraction that's around the situation. It's like that we, we all know it and we all feel it. It's not so much 
the physical pain of something happened, but it's actually knowing that we're contracting energetically to a situation that's potentially going to arise from the action that we take. You know, whether it's contracting and choosing not to say something or contracting and choosing not to take a job or, or the contraction around the idea that you're never going to pay rent again. You're like, well, if I step out of that, I've broken this rule that I've created. And it's actually those, those moments or those feelings, or those energetic shifts that we have inside us, very subtle most of the time or very, very loud most of the time as well, all right? Um, but that's probably more what you're talking about, right? It's not like this physical pain that we have to put ourselves through, but it's actually like that energetic contraction around the identity that we've created. And this is actually the yeah. thing that's stopping us from letting the map be curated in front of us because we have this idea of, of how the map should look and how the path should be forged. Yeah, I definitely think that, as you said, it's subtle. Um, you mentioned it being loud, and it can be loud, but I definitely more feel the idea of it being subtle. I think that the world is not incarcerated by big steel poles or by gunshots. Mm. Um, it's the gentle, insidious discomfort and avoidance. And yeah, that is where the, the true prison resides. Mm. I think that if things become too apparent, it causes mass uprising, and we just go and do something about it, unless we're totally in apathy, in which case we're buckled to that as well but at least then it's in our vision at least then we can perceive it it's the things just in our peripheral awareness that we can't quite see it's the subtle thing of like oh no i'm just gonna sit down oh, oh i'm just gonna eat that thing or oh just this one time it's like the the gentle wrist of the of the warden that sort of keeps us locked in which is why it's also sometimes hard to catch because it's not always very obvious and evident and I think that's why it's, a, it's so important to do things like fasting or to, to really unpacking the big charge and trauma so you can be more aware of the gentle shifts that happen in a conversation, that little bit of charge, that little bit of resistance, a little bit of judgment, um, all of that kind of, it's a very, it's a fine art um, where I think that the true lock click will happen to truly liberate our species. Mm. You've mentioned fasting a couple of times and I know that you're a big proponent of it. So. Take us on a bit of a journey. I know you've done some really long fasts and um, and you've gone down that route as well. And I'd like to tie this into to when you you just kind of backpacked around the world and hitchhiked with no money and just kind of went through different countries because I'm so fascinated with that story. Um, so let's start with the fasting. So tell us a, a little bit about your process with that. Um, do you have a, a schedule with it? And, and kind of what's your maybe spiritualism to it as well, as well as your kind of physicality to it? Yeah. Check the mic. We're back. You're back? All right, cool. There we are. Uh, awesome. For me, fasting is a great training ground that has analogies to a lot of other things. I call it a threshold release technique. And so you can have a, a shorter turnaround with something like a cold shower. Um, you can also do it with abstinence or, or sexual retention and, and celibacy. You can do it with hunger. You can do it with pain, you know, scarification, burning, all these kind of things. Uh, anger, emotional. They're, they're a similar kind of process. And it's the idea of coming to an edge and softening across it. So I call it the yin path to yang. And it's learning how to traverse that space. And I think it does relate to the Buddhist idea of dying before you die. And I've had a few different experiences where I've come to that threshold and I've softened across it. 
sometimes through uh, breath work, sometimes through medicine journeys and different things like that, where it feels like there's an end. Same Kundalini yoga, you know, repeating a certain um, movement and you go, there's a physical block and limit and you kind of sublimate or evaporate across the threshold into the next phase. So fasting is kind of in that group of practices for me. I think also because it's so primal it's like food at that base level of survival you're coming directly into the animal terms and coming to face to face with those instincts and those urges which i think is really powerful and i think as well the gut being the second brain you know it's the center of all these nerve endings and so it's, it's a really amazing place to to alter the chemical and hormonal composition of the body as well and i think for me a big part of this life journey is about letting go and unlearning and, and, you know, detoxing of the bowel and doing flushes and fasting is kind of getting rid of that intestinal plaque. So you've got the microvilli, these like little hair-like structures that you absorb food through. And obviously they can get clogged and things after this, this buildup happens. And also we have duress on our body by always having to digest. And so when you really start to pause that through fasting, it can actually go and do other, you know, cellular roles and that sort of thing. So for me, it's, it's about that. It's about letting go. And the less leads to reclamation of more of our liveness. And because it's also down in the gut, it's going to the lower dantian. So there's like energy source. You know, Also in Kundalini Yoga, there's the spiral at the, the, the base of the spine um, and Qigong and, and Negong and all these sort of things. It's this kind of seat of your power. And so it's coming right down to this area where we can generate that energy and find a, a rejuvenation from a different kind of uh, interface which is the energy going into the body and, and i think that's what allows you to do because you have to let go hunger itself is often just a signal and it also helps you discern what is an actuality and what is a warning sign being hungry is nothing you have to do something about it's not like you got a knife in your side it's just a signal that there's some kind of state shift in the chemical composition in your body which is saying oh, about now we should probably refill and often it can be maybe an acidic condition. Sometimes you have, have alkaline, like that burning, like hunger sense in the stomach dissipates just because it's a chemical shift to more sort of an alkaline state. So for me, those are kind of reasons why to sort of go into that process. Um, for me, the experience of it is definitely enhanced by the beingness or the self-perception of who I am. So if you have a signal, right, um, that is telling you you're cold, if I consider I'm a Viking, and I'm doing training, that signal is verification that I'm on my path. So it becomes pleasurable. The cold means I'm a man, I'm on the front line, I'm a Viking, I'm exposing myself. So similarly, if I feel like a monk, or if I feel like a yogi, or if I feel like a stoic, when I feel the hunger, that mental framing gives me pride. It means I'm on my path. And so it becomes pleasure. It reinforces rather than the resistance, like, oh, I'm, I'm hungry. I don't yeah. like this. And that's like an identity of like whiny person or whatever it is. Or I'm, I should have food because whatever you think about yourself, only poor people go hungry, whatever. If you've got a negative mm. framing, but if you have a positive framing, it actually enhances and it becomes a, a momentum giver to continue in that, that sort of path. Another really important part to this is the agreement with the body. The body is an amazing thing. I don't you know, ever declare that I know and know what the component parts of the human being are, but my thesis is, my, my hypothesis is that we are a conglomerate of a number of different 
organisms, energetic, mental, spiritual, all these kind of things that work in concert together. And we can't even discern what's what. We're so used to having all these different signals come into the singular I that we just take it to be self. But I really see a distinction between the, the spirit and the mind and the body. And the body is like the most beautiful steed, you know, like you've got an amazing horse, you've got this beast that you ride in the back of you. It's just like this awesome uh, machine. It's just this beautiful kind of entity. And I believe that the human body can do a lot more than we think it can do as long as you talk to it and communicate. So for example, with the cold showers, I have it every day, but I tell my body, all right, I'm going to make it cold now because you build trust. You don't just shock your body. Same thing with friends. I don't like jumping around the corner and scaring my friends because you're continually breaking trust. Like we need to communicate. We need to come back to innocence. And so for me, that's what I also try and establish with my body. It's like, hey, like same thing with, with dental work. I've smashed my teeth out. I've had, I've like had all kinds of dental surgery. And I tell my body, all right, we're going to go into this thing. This is why we're going to do it. It's for our improvement. Same thing with tattoos. That's a ritual. I'm going to go into this. I'm not, I'm not doing this to punish you. This is, going to, this is about a ritual of, of whatever significance I'm giving it. And I really find when I talk to my body in that way and I set the intention, my body starts to fast immediately. Like if I really mean it, if I've got intention, the hunger is way less, sometimes not at all for the first day, whereas usually by about 11 or something like that, I'd be like, oh, I'm hungry. Often in that first day, I'm not hungry at all. It's like, wow, my body really got on, on board with this. By about day two or three, that, that first three days is kind of the thing. And I'd, I'd suggest, I mean, I'm not a doctor, of course, you know, yep. this is not, not medical advice. You've got to take self-responsibility. I don't know your condition. So you've got to know yourself. However, for me personally, the, if I was going to do a minimum, I'd do three days because that three-day period is like a time to really get into actual fasting when you've, you've moved stuff through. I often do um, like a salt flush as well or some kind of like excavation where you get rid of stuff and do that in the mornings. Um, and by about that stage, you move through the body hunger and it becomes more of an energetic thing. You're no longer sort of needing food. The mind though goes wild about food. Like, no food has ever tasted as good as I imagine when I'm like five or six days into a fast. It becomes like the most like, oh my God, fantasy, like luscious, like imagine having chocolate, imagine yeah. having bread or whatever it is, you know? And then you have it, you break the fast again. I was like, oh, that was okay. Yeah, totally. I, I feel um, like my partner's broken more of my fast than I've finished them simply because she's cooked a normal meal, but I'd be like, God damn, why is she making such delicious food tonight? Oh my God. Ah. Fuck it, I'm going to have it anyway. So yeah, it's, it's this amazing thing that the mind, and, and you really start, I really think we get defeated in the mind first. Um, I've been watching some endurance stuff and I'm, I'm a big proponent for endurance art. I do, you know, 24, 48 hour endurance. I'm actually going to be going for it to try and break a world record um, this year to do with virtual reality as well. So I, I really like it as a spiritual practice because it's about the mind giving up before the body does. The body's amazing. Mm. Um, so for me, it's this training, once again, of letting go, of hearing the instruction and going, no, I don't trust you. And this is also about life planning. If I come to a supernatural state and openness, and I, the way I judge it is I feel open, I feel positive, I feel connected, things are in flow, the space opens up, the room feels lighter, I feel more immediate, I'm not thinking, I'm knowing. All of these kind of signals show me I'm in a state of truth, I believe, or closer to truth and being able to see things. If I make a decision in that state of mind, I try and obey it when I'm in a more heavy 
pain-driven victim effect, like, oh, sort of things like, I don't trust myself right now. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. And that's kind of part of the training is to listen to the higher version of yourself and be the soldier when things are tough. So I think that's a key part. And it's like a moving meditation. If I'm running, say, for example, um, just little rhythmic kind of just a, a way. It's like it could be any mantra. It's anything to occupy that busy, noisy part of the mind so that the body can then just follow your original orders when you, you originally set them as that sort of higher consciousness. Mm. Oh, there's so See, many there's downloads. And I saw Ryan writing things down as well. I'm, uh, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, there's so much like we could we could keep talking about fasting. I just don't want to take up the whole thing about fasting. But yeah, there's plenty more to talk about it. But are you just handing back to you if there's any anything? Do you, have a, do, you, do, you, do you have a routine for it? Or is it a calling? Or when, when, when do you do it? Yeah, it's definitely an intuitive calling. I don't have like any, you know, systematic way of going on and off. Um, because the diet, like the inner biome is such a source, I believe, of the external well-being and the mental state. If I feel like there's a violation, it's a really good way to reset. Sometimes I do it with a calendar, it's like a time for like a seasonal reset. I think I'd start with some kind of fast. Other times I can just tell there's this mucus layer or there's this insulation building up between me and life. It's time to do another fast. Um, I do it as well for clarity. I think that talking about subtle energies, when you fast for a few days, by about day four or five, you really get into quite a spiritual conversation with God. There's this much more electric, energetic, kind of esoteric conversation going on. So I think that's a big reason why people do it on vision quests and that sort of thing, because you actually become, it's not that hard for us to become spiritually connected. Mm. We're just so incessantly bombarded with stimulus all the time, whether it be through devices or food or problems or social noise and gossip and all this kind of stuff. If you put someone in nature and they don't eat for a few days, most people start to, you know, remember their lineage or, you know, be autodidactic, teaching yourself to be observant of life. You know, you don't have to be taught by anyone else. You just have to observe and sit back and listen. And so I think fasting is a great tool for that as well. Um, and then, yeah, I do it intuitively. You start to feel like any kind of flow state, whether it be jazz or freestyling or surfing or contact dance, fasting is a similar kind of thing where you start to feel that process and it takes a few days, but you go, ah, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm in the seat of it. And I think any of these kind of practices teach you them themselves. I found that with breath work as well. Breath work taught me how to do breath work. Now, admittedly, I was initiated by someone who breathed me. Um, this is down in Melbourne. Um, and that was uh, through summer um, healing yoga. And uh, Amy took me through these 10 sessions, which was amazing. Um, and then I also did sort of study for a bit. But after a while, it was like, oh, even this external reference point is an imposition between me and the source of this practice. And then by doing breath work, I was learning all these things and I was standing up when I need to and down and bending and, you know, all these kind of things. So I think fasting also initiates you into this autodidactic state of intuitive learning and observation. Um, and so that's as far as, you know, do I have a system? No, I, just, so I go into it and I feel and it takes me and leads me where it needs me to go. It's like that conversation you were talking about, very similarly, how you have a conversation with your body, your body's having that conversation with you. It's sort of guiding you and being like, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling dysregular. As you're saying, I'm feeling this mucous membrane over my life when that actually represents what's going on in your intestines and your digestive system. So you're just listening to 
the conversation with the body, right? Exactly. I reckon cool. I reckon at least 60% of people who are listening to this will probably fast the next day because that was <laughs> I feel like I want to fast right now. Like it just it, it, it's so clue and it's so easy and it's so it's so simple when it's reminiscence, right? And that's most things in life. They really are. We 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 overcomplicate things and then the stimulation creates the complication as well. It continues the complication. Whereas as you said, it stop eating for a few days, have the intention for it, go into nature and you will, you will, you will sort most of your shit out. You know, it can, it, it can actually bring you back to homeostasis, that nice baseline level of rigidity of the human experience of the spiritual experience at the same time. And you can really just have some clarity on some things. I think one of the massive benefits for me, so I was someone I've got a fairly high metabolism and I was always snacking and I would actually have anxiety if I left the house without money or a snack pack lunchbox. And so when I knew I could just leave the house and at some point that night I'd come back and I could eat then, I was like this, this baseline survival fear and worry just left. And so I think for me, and this kind of leads into going across country, like food and shelter, right? Baseline. If you know that you don't need immediate food or immediate shelter, that's when the state of open world opens up. Because you imagine if you never needed to eat, if you never needed to sleep, if you never needed to protect from the elements, suddenly life would have a forward dynamism where you didn't need to return home to your safe little cave and fridge. Mm. And so that's the kind of significant shift that that baseline fear which is totally not necessary because you can easily go for a few days without food. That baseline fear completely was eradicated. And I could just feel so much more equipped with my baseline isness of my body to go and meet the world without preparation and without, you know, holding a, a breadcrumb line back to, to race back to the fridge when I needed. What was it? Let's go into that journey. Cause I, 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 I know a little bit about, you know, bits and pieces of it. So I'd love to hear about what was your, well, firstly, how did you go? Where did you go? What did you get up to? What was the calling for it? And what were the lessons that you went through when you basically just took a bag, got on a plane and went to a different country and said, all right, I'm here? So yeah, there's a few different journeys. I've done it numerous times in different contexts. So the first time was going across Australia. We caught it from nothing and I did it with two friends and we took a video camera. Um, and so that idea was wanting to tell a story, wanting to have an amazing adventure with some friends um, and also wanting to prove that the true economy is human and it's not based on any other secondary element like a coin. So yeah, we just went from Sydney, went right to the center um, through uh, Cuba PD and then up um, through the center through Alice Springs and up to Darwin um, and I can sort of tell you about that journey but I kind of want to tell you all the different ones that was the first kind of one that was in 2011 um, and then later in 2013 I think it was 2013 2014 2013 um, I was in New York and um, I was hanging out with some people we called ourselves the infinity kids a really cool group of people and we'd have these artistic and these spiritual kind of jams and one night we were out on the street and talking to people in, in cars and in shops and we were in this flow state. And it was like, I, I can't go back. I have to be in communication with the world. And I still think that doing what I'm doing now is in violation of that moment of realization where it said to me, or the self-realization was, you don't need to prepare anymore. You're equipped with what you need. All you need to do is converse with people. That is the medicine you're here to bring. You're ready now. 
And so that was kind of the, the command. And that was the feeling of integrity. That was the sense of passion and purpose and what I was here to do. And so the next day I just went on trains and I just started to stand up and say, hey, I am Atlas. Well, I didn't call myself Atlas at the time. This is my, my other name, Bravo. So I said, hi, I'm Bravo. I'm an artist from Australia. And I believe that we're being artificially kept from each other. And I understand why, because when I see us on TV, I don't like that species. And I see all this war and this rape and this injustice. And I want to be as far away from those people as possible. But it's not me. So it's probably not you either. And I think that with our uh, inequality of economy, it's an injustice brought about through that fear because there's probably a surplus and a deficit that can be brought into balance if I just know what you need, because in each of our industries, we often have a surplus. And so maybe we can share right here and now and things are going to balance out. So I had a similar kind of dialogue, train after train after train after train with all these strangers. Some people responded well, some people didn't, some people gave me gifts, some people exchanged emails, etc. So it was this kind of bringing myself through the discomfort and embarrassment out mm. to the public space and just communicating. And by communicating, you're shortening the difference between idea and action. You know, you're starting to put your inspiration into reality without a lot of filter. Just go, 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 go. And I started to get this hit of just make sound. Don't worry about words even. <laughs> just make sound. So I got off a train and I started to go, um, um. And, you know, that's obviously oming, but for me, that was, I think that oming is such a natural thing to do and it's become yeah. this yogic thing and it's got the symbol, but I wasn't thinking I'm going to om, it was just, I'm going to make sound. And that just happened to be what my mouth kind of did. And when I was in the state and you probably know from breath work and from singing and, you know, all this kind of thing, you start to feel the the chi a little bit more, the prana, the life force starts to be more evident. And I call it the third space, which is like it maps directly to the physical space, but it's more of energetic in nature. So I saw an energetic tunnel in front of me going through the wall and out across America. So I was in New York. I'm not sure if I said that, but I was in New York when this happened. And so I was like, I know I just need to walk that path. So, but the, the channel that I saw was so far, it went through the subway. So I had to get out of the subway. So I walked up to the road and I just walked in that path I saw in that direction. Um, um, um. And I started to see the beautiful choreography. I was like, I don't need to stop for anyone. Like everyone's moving around me. This is cool. Mm. I'm just going to keep walking. So I was going across pavements, going across roads. Everything was green. It was all good. And then someone from the side said, hey, I want some of that energy. This guy... Like, this is literal, exactly what happened. This guy in the crowd said, I want some of that energy. He put his hand and gave me a high five. I'm like, yeah, that guy. And they're gone. Um, um. My hand started to lock up into this shape. You know, when you get tetany from doing breath work. So they, they started to get tight. And I was like, oh, my body's trying to hold this energy. I'm generating energy. I might need to use this in some stage. So I kind of held it at my belly and lower dantian, still going home, home. And then I'm like, I don't, my mouth started to get tight. I'm like, I don't know how far. I'm going to go. I need to get some support. So I got my little mobile phone. And I called a friend of mine. I'm like, I'm down here. Um, um, I don't know what's happening, but my, my mouth is getting tight. My arms are getting tight. So I told my friend where I was. And he goes, cool, I'm going to come. Um, I know where you are. And so then I was like, cool. I knew that probably if I stopped arming, this would dissipate. But I'm like, no, no, I want to see how deep this goes. So my body started to fold up. And there I was lying, like kind of this, I felt like a, 
a lotus flower that was contracting to this bulb. And so I'm getting close, small and small, hum, hum. And everyone is walking past me, ignoring me until this one guy, uh, I guess you'd consider him to be like his bedraggled and kind of like worn clothes, probably like a homeless kind of archetype comes up to me and he goes, hey man, are you okay? breathed like this and he slowed my breathing down I'm like okay well this is a life moment I'm going to go with it so I sure. kind of stopped doing arming I followed his directions I calmed down and then for the next like half an hour to 45 minutes he was just giving me a life lesson after life lesson he wasn't asking you just telling me he goes where are you from I'm from New Zealand he goes ah you'll have to learn to fly before you leave New York people come to New York to speed up the revolution while he's talking to me this guy jumps between us hits the sign drops back, he's walking backwards and says, are you famous at McDonald's yet? And then went off into the crowd. And then the guy said to me, like, do you know that guy? How long have you known him for? And I'm like, I don't know who, who that was. And he goes, interesting. His ancestors were sharks. And I watched this guy go off into the crowd and he's got like black slicked hair. He's got an upturned nose and he's not stopping. He like goes off. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And he said, do you feel the cold wind? And I'm like, and he says, they have being aware that you've stepped into their realm. And as soon as he said that, they're like, there's this other layer of communication. I was like, oh, I get it. When you start to do these practices, you kind of go interdimensional and it's almost like a new person walks into the room. It's like, huh, mm. what's Atlas doing here? Who are you? Mm. And I was like, oh, I'm out of my depth. I don't know what I'm interacting with. Like I, I realized I had to kind of take a few steps back. And he said, so that, you know, they've sent the wind because they need to free something in you because there's some kind of physical adjustment. And he said, when they send the cold winds, it slows your metabolism and body. And then they can sort of do some work on you. So some people are happy you're here, but the shark people, they didn't want you here. So they sent him to kind of scare you off. At this point, the shark guy walks back the other way, but kind of looking confused and purposeless. It was almost like, like oh, I don't know what the, and he walks the other way. And then this guy started to tell me a bunch of other survival things, like if you're in the desert, this is how you get water, dot, dot, dot. And then my friend arrives. And then I'm like, oh my God, there's this like amazing guru guy, like been telling me all this stuff. And the guy's whole demeanor kind of changed. And he started, like the words were a lot less coherent. And I'm like, oh, like, can I film some of the stuff you said? And he's like, no, 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 that was just for you. And I go, oh, just that thing about Superman, like, you know, how I have to learn to fly before I go back to New Zealand. Can you say that? And he goes, okay. So I put up my phone and I recorded him. <clears throat> when I looked at that video the next day, there's no sound, no sound mm. on the recording. He just... So yeah, I really think that these electric devices plug into our energetic fields and they're, they're interesting kind of extensions of that whole realm. Anyway, my friend walked me through some Tai Chi. We're doing some kind of release of energy in the space. And I was, you know, platitude back. And by this stage, the guy just left, you know, that, that wise guy who was, it was obviously just like a one-on-one -on -one kind of message for me. Um, and then I was like, hey man, like I am going to walk across America. And my friend was like, Okay, cool. <laughs> and then I'm like, can you tell my friends, you know, that I'm going to go on this trip? He goes, yeah, cool. No problem. I'll tell them. Um, and he goes, well, let's get you some supplies. So he took me to a corner store. He gave me like an apple and a couple of muesli bars. And he said, like, cool, man, like, amazing <laughs> journey. He's an amazing friend, like awesome wild guy. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and yeah, and so I started walking. And I mean, there's more to that story. Um, there's lots I could tell you about it. But essentially, I ended up going across America from New York to L.A., um, through various methods, through walking a lot, through hitchhiking in trucks, through plane in the end, um, went through various states um, and yeah, got to LA. And I really knew that you can do that forever, particularly in the West. I'm not talking about all nations and as a clown, you know, a, a sacred clown or a chaos clown, I don't think it's my role to necessarily interrupt uh, and disrupt all cultures. 
but I'm here to look at the colonized cultures, British colonialism, which went through mm. to America and came down through to Australia, New Zealand. I feel I have a right to fuck with that system because that's my system. That's kind of my inheritance. And so I don't necessarily think I should go through Southeast Asia or Africa or any other places to kind of mess with it, but I'm happy to mess with, with you know, with the things that I come from. Um, and maybe the last, I mean, I've done it in a few different ways, but the, the last one I'll tell you about is we, when you talk about flying to another place, I flew to Greece. And so this is like, I don't know anyone in Greece. I don't know any Greek. And I arrived at the airport and I'm like, I'm going to play. I'm going to see if the rules of games and play apply to the real world. I'm going to observe as though I think there's a game designer. And so if I was a game designer, where should I look? What are these people's behaviors? Where's the non-player character that's inviting me into a quest? You know, I really started to look at that. And once again, I mean, dot, 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 I survived, met an amazing guy. Um, within an hour or so, I had a place to stay. Um, and we were on another quest, you know, another adventure. So, yeah, it, it works. It definitely works. It's an amazing story, brother. And I didn't know the depths of it. And obviously, you... you would have gone through so many people and journeys and different things. I mean, that could fill a whole whole podcast on its own. But um, I really appreciate you sharing that because there's so many takeaways from that. Just of 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 just the the the, the true open mindedness of literally being where you want to be. And as you said, you just started going into your arms and just going, well, I'm going to unashamedly just carry this on and see what happens. You know, I mean, I think that's a a, a beautiful metaphor for life just carry on and see what happens you know it's it's persevere or pivot well continually persevere and see what happens and then pivot and then persevere you know and i mean we, we i personally and i know right guys the same thing i mean you, you come across these 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 situations these multi-dimensional situations where someone will just randomly turn up and then they'll randomly bugger off and then there was a, a profound message and it was just for you you know, even when you said you recorded them and you can't hear them. I mean, I love that. I love every part of that, you know, and this has obviously been a baseline level of ultimately how you've got to be where you are now. You know, I mean, that takes some balls. You say you were out of your masculinity, but there, there's not much more masculine than, than going up on your own path like that and just diving headfirst into your journey. You're doing, you're acting, you are curating your own life i mean that's that's the depth of masculinity right there brother you know mm, that's a nice framing yeah thank you i think i think my way into it and this is interesting to do with attractiveness because i think beauty can be its own cage mm. and as a teenager i did not feel attractive at all i was gangly i had a lot of pimples all along my my cheeks i'd like a big well i still have a big nose but i kind of fitted it a bit more when i was younger i didn't fit my nose it was like way too big um i remember going to australia i had to have i had long hair and i had to have it tied back i had to wear i felt like i was being strangled because i had to wear a tie for the first time in my life so i was so uncomfortable i couldn't look cool or sexy and i just had to like fully surrender into the weirdness and i kind of owned that as my calling card and I think that being okay to be weird and odd one out is a hugely therapeutic act because at some point you stop being self-conscious and you can actually be attendant upon what's happening in the process. And I think that is where we can truly be guided through the mystery into the next genius moment. 
you know, and genius means the spirit that was attendant upon your birth, like really finding a unique path. Sometimes mm -hmm. the road left traveled and you can't always find it through the well-paved path and you have to get lost. It's like, there's a lot of paths, but there's a lot of also wilderness in between the paths. And you have to be able to be lost and not know where the next branch is to grab onto. And that is kind of knowing how to walk through the mystery in order to get back on track and like, ah, great. So weirdness was the permission slip. Mm. And, and that's why I do a lot of public displays of humanity and taking people into public spaces to break taboos and find the electric fence, the invisible curtailing factor of that's not okay. You know, lying down in the middle of a walkway in, in a street or making noise when you shouldn't or, you know, whatever the case may be, looking at the little instructions in street furniture and signage and painting lines like it's so heavy and it's so didactic and so it's in that weirdness that we finally come into flow state and not self-aware but observant of what is and then we can surf the wave but you need to break through that self-obsession of attractiveness first mm. it's such an addiction isn't it it's such an addiction because there's a people please a tendency on that to wear the mask for how people can perceive you to be wanted and to be liked and to be nurtured and to be loved and to be accepted so attractiveness especially now in the social media you know comparison kind of lifestyle we live it's oh that person's more attractive than me you know it's that unworthiness it's that unflowing that unlove of the self however you've got I mean, we're all weird. We are all fucking weird. You know, every single one of us is weird and it's just absolutely owning that weirdness. And that ultimately got you to the process of you trusting the universe, tr truly trusting that you will be caught in every situation. You are jumping off the cliff, knowing the universe will catch you as jumping off the cliff and building your plane on the way down, knowing the universe will catch you. And that's an early lesson. I mean, that's, I mean, you're only 40 brother, you know, it's still it's still you know it's not even halfway through your life you know and so for you to get these lessons so early on i think is so profound so so profound thank you brother yeah i think like you said building your craft on the way down and i love that full archetype um and that's you know the part with open world theater i've created these kind of levels or orbits and that's the first orbit is into the nothingness into the zero and i think that you don't have to trust anyone else if you fully trust yourself. Like Correct. it doesn't matter if, if someone steals my money because I trust myself <laughs> without money. It doesn't matter if someone betrays me because I can open my heart with compersion if someone cheats on me. It doesn't matter if I lose my job because I can be resourceful. It doesn't matter if someone attacks me because I, I know self-defense. So like if you trust yourself, you become disarmed because I don't need to trust you. And I will give you the benefit of the doubt. I assume you're well-meaning. And that proves to be correct most of the time. And so all of a sudden life becomes soft and it becomes welcoming, but it becomes not because I'm necessarily ignorant or just trust everybody. I don't necessarily trust everyone, but I trust myself first. It's beautiful. The polarity in the play that comes through, through, through the, just the thread of the story. And, uh, the way in which you talk about having the ability to to mess with the western world but still have such a deep respect um, when you step into other countries and things like that like understanding and seeing you talk in in two different ways about these two different subjects for me it's just like it's like there's a constant respect for the situation and knowing when to give yourself permission to actually play with it the energy and then actually respect the energy of it 
you know what is yours and what isn't yours what is yours to be played with and what isn't yours to be played with it's 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 beautiful to just hear you communicate that as i was just sitting back and being the witness to the story yeah thank you brother what comes up for me there is reverence and i talk about this open world theater it's like find your point of reverence and this is the overcoming i think that a lot of us are aware or have the perspective that the the mind is one of the the huge impositions of us to overcome and for me reverence is that catalyst or one of the most effective ways to carve through that you know you might feel lazy and not want to go to work but if you've got reverence for your purpose you'll get up anyway or you might not want to go into the cold but if you have reverence for your partner or your children you go out anyway you know so it's this thing that's so important and it's not negative. It's not fear. It's not running from something. It's love-based. I think that reverence pulls you towards your North Star. And there's this really nice definition of longing, which isn't a craving to take in, but it's a, it's a drive towards your North Star. You long towards your destiny, mm. which I really like this kind of aspect of being drawn to something. So reverence for me is the first thing to find. If you don't respect anything in the world, I think this is a big falling down in the modern world, that we are disappointed so much in the world we live in. And therefore, we don't revere anything. So we've got no true motivation to overcome our urges and our more subconscious kind of habits. So I think for me, that's one of the key things. It's having that vision so strong that will get you through the tough times. It's not necessarily setting a goal. It's having the vision for your life, knowing that that vision can constantly change. It's like I talk about it having a port you're sailing to because then you know which winds to catch, but the port can always change. And so can all the winds. You just need to change your sheet, right? So have that vision, have that reverence that's so strong that it'll get you through the comfortability that you want to fall back into. Get through uh, and change those habits that you've created that don't serve you anymore for you to break those to create the new habits. And I think that's such an important piece of um, of information. You know, it's it's you are the you are the burning example of holding reverence and holding a vision and then creating action on the intuitive guidance that you are feeling from the divine. It's just I have the purpose, I have the trust in me. I know that wherever I show up, I will be caught. I know wherever I can, I can create. And where I can create, I can thrive. And I think that's a beautiful subset to absolutely live your life by, brother. Yeah, thank you, brother. Thanks for summarizing it so beautifully. Yeah, the mm. vision is important. I think that in some ways, ideals are a timeless vision. Ideals are the vision of the now. So sometimes a vision could be seen to be a destination, something to go towards or to achieve or to accomplish. But I think ideals are a vision for how to be in response to the world. And then those become a, a momentary standard to hold for yourself. And they apply to any situation, particularly if you whittle down to a universal ideal, always to be open, always to grow, always to say yes, always to add to life or whatever it is, you know, they apply to a relationship, to a business, to a, a natural emergency, all these sort of things. And there you can, or you can just respond, but always be in keeping with that vision for who you are in any situation. Mm. Yep, very much so. I love that. Um, I know we're respectful of your time, brother, and we could keep chatting for hours. However, I, I actually just want to go on a bit of a um, a, a personal uh, kind of exploration with you very quickly before we go. Uh, and that's in a name change. So um, I just want to share a bit of a, a quick story. Uh, I know I've shared on the podcast before, but just so so you know. So um, so I've gone into this process where I've been given a, a, a new name. Uh, Bodhi Archella is the name. 
And uh, I went through a, a huge death, a huge stripping, a huge absolute falling away of the scaffolding of my identity to get there. And and uh, I, I I I got um, I got given the the name by somebody who I uh, who's a dear spiritual guide and teacher of mine and a, a dear brother. And I asked him and went through a naming ceremony and gave it to me. And that was this December last year. And so since then, I've just been allowing it to drop in and just let it sit with it. And and we went to Kiwi Burn, and obviously you can play on the you can you can use your your paddock name and and change it. And so I played in that character for five days when we were there, and and I've told different certain people and and different things. But the messaging that I got was this will be once you dissolve away your name then if you can do this and you can just be the true architect of your life, because that's one of the main identities that you hold to yourself that you've been given. Um, so I, uh, I've always, I've, I've, I've wanted to be, I want to speak to you because obviously you've changed your name a couple of times. So I, I would love to to just hear your thoughts, your journey, your, your, your processes and, and kind of, you know, necessarily the, the, the overall aspect of, of, of changing your name. Yeah, beautiful. And and what a beautiful uh, name as well, Bodhi Achala. Mm. I like that. Yeah. For me, it's the key defining calling card of your character. And you're continually reminded of it because people call you it. So they're kind of calling you into that identity or that persona. It's also an externally derived thing. And there is a beauty to that, <clears throat> you know, your parents naming you, but Often they'll name you before they even meet you. A lot of pregnant mothers know the name of the child before they're born. Some people go through a process of inquiry. Some people don't. But I definitely think that there's so much subconscious attachment and identity around the name, expectation. And you can live and die multiple lifetimes in one body lifetime, you know, an identity mm -hmm. cycle. The same way that planet Earth holds many worlds. If you go to Tokyo, it's another world to the middle of the desert, another world to deep Amazon, I'm sure, I've never been there, but they're completely different worlds, even though it's on the same planet. So same thing with our, our identity. Some people, they opt out. Some people, as we know, many, many people commit suicide because they don't want to continue that story. They find there's no way that I can get through the story or there's no reason to live in this identity. So why not reset without the body death? Why not just disappear? Like just burn all your belongings, go on into the deep, what is it? Like let that identity die, reset. And it's a big thing because there's a lot of attachment and safety to that, but that's also part of the mystery. So for me, I got to a stage where I didn't like the difference between the perception on stage as an actor and the reality of day-to-day -day life. I remember the heartbreak when I saw an interview with Rowan Atkinson, who I loved as Mr. Bean, as this clown and inspiration. And he was so posh and a little bit conservative, a bit negative. And I was like, oh no, that's this guy. I was like, no, I don't want to be that. And I was also doing some stuff backstage at a festival and these amazing benevolent actors came off and had a ciggy and had a complaint and a bitch about this audience member. Like, oh, wow, like you're so different. It's not true, you know? And with open world theater, which, which came after name changes, but it's really about you completely dissolve. You're completely having the experience of the moment. You'll be taken by the scene. You are absolutely authentic and you mean it to be able to state shift your heart into authenticity and sincerity. And so for me, it was like, if I really want to bring wonder to the world, I went from being my birth name, which I'm not going to say because someone, some people don't like to know, um, but I decided to shift into Bravo, 
like yay because it was positive whenever people say my name it's like an applause and it was a clown kind of name because <laughs> i wanted to be a clown and so i thought yeah this this links and it links to my birth name through bravo through b and so I adopted that and I legally changed my name. I can't even remember the year of it, but it would have been about 2004, probably. So coming up to 20 years ago. Um, and that was me deciding that there was no off stage, that I was always dedicating full time to a clown, to bring one to the world, to play, to flow state. There was no off switch. I had to completely surrender. And in, and I believe in flow practices, that's only when you're truly in flow is when you let go of time. It's like if you're doing meditations and mantra and you're watching the clock, only 10 more minutes, only five more minutes. No, you're not. Like part of your attention wants out. But instead, when there is no going back, you just surrender. And that's when you get the full lifefulness of the identity. It's like, it's always who I am. And so I, I created that for many years. Um, so it would have been from 2004 to about 2016, I think 2016, 2017. And I realized I'd built up so many unfulfilled dreams. Bravo Child wanted to have a kid's book. Bravo Child wanted to have a cartoon series. Bravo Child wanted to have a toy made after him. Bravo Child wanted to have a card deck. Bravo, et cetera, et cetera. I was burdened by all these unfulfilled dreams, which I could never get around to doing. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to let them all go. And then whatever comes back, I'm just going to try and focus on one because it's better doing one thing than dreaming about a hundred things. Mm. And so I got rid of the name Bravo Child and I adopted the name. Well, it wasn't actually Atlas yet, but I, I decided to wear all black because I used to wear so many colors. And it was like, I'm also going to go into the real world and test if my play and kooky art stuff works in the real world. And I got more into ritual art um and so yeah that was kind of a key stage but i went from bravo child to be called to being called space cassidy so space cassidy i see like bravo child was kind of like my well, child name and then space cassidy was my apprentice name or my adolescent name and for me space cassidy was like the pirate adventure of rebel on the open highway of yeah. life you know and they were just out there and it was like up for anything no rules and it was just it was cool but then one friend of mine in Germany said, well, but what's your final name? Because if that's your, your, your apprentice name, what's your master name? Mm. And I was like, oh, like I'm not ready for it yet. And she said, but maybe you should call yourself towards it like your destiny. So as people yeah. call you, it's something to grow into. Mm. And so I said, okay, I'll, call, I'll try that. So originally it was going to be Zeus Zimmerman. And it was a big name. Zimmerman is like carpenter. And, and in Germany, the idea of the carpenter was the journeyman. And you'd come to a certain stage and you have to leave your hometown and you have to go find out skills from other villages to bring back as resources and riches and wisdom to your, your home village. So I really like this idea of the journeyman. So it's like, oh yeah, Zimmerman. It sounds a bit like Shimmerman, a bit like, like magic and Zeus is just like oh, this yeah. big kind of God, but also um, Dr. Zeus. Yeah. You know, for me, this whimsical kind of character, so it's still there. And in German, Zeus is like sweet. So like mm. sweet Zimmerman, the sweet carpenter. It was like this cool, it was like masculine, but kind of sweet. I imagine me old with a big, long white beard with tattoos on my forearms, like a suit kind of rolled <laughs> up, you know, like that, a good hair, like boom, yeah. he's Zeus. Like, so And in some ways, I kind of am a little bit attached to that name. But then, I don't know, there was something that some people like, it's too grand, it's too big. And I was like, what's one rung down? 
Like what's a, it's godlike, but it's a bit more human. And that's where Atlas came because it feels like Atlas is a mix between the mythical and the real. You know, it's like Atlantis. It existed, did it? I don't know. So it's like kind of fantasy, but it's kind of real. Atlas is of the world. It's a traveler. It's the globe. It feels kind of blue magic to me. Um, and so I also like the idea of, you know, Atlas holding the weight of the world. There's one particular image I saw where Atlas was holding this, this weight and underneath them were all these women reclining. And I felt like <laughs> you could make space. You can hold the weight of the world off so that women have a place to be safe Beautiful. and free and children yep. can play and you just create space. So that's kind of Atlas is like bringing the burden to carve it out. You want to have a problem? Come to me first because behind me is safe. And so that's why I took on Atlas. And then talisman also represents the completion of a ceremony. If you look at the etymology. So for me, it was kind of the completion of the naming ritual, coming from child to adolescent to, to master or to final name. So that's why Atlas, talisman. And interestingly, after the fact, I realized this bravo child, Atlas, talisman. So it was also yeah. this interesting kind of full circle. So yeah, that's kind of my, my naming process. I still think that maybe one day someone else will give me a name. Uh, also with my yep. game, Vicarious, I think maybe the people will name me at some stage of the game and my identity will shift. But I think fundamentally, it's about that for me. It's about being able to timeline hop or storyline hop and to mm. bury all the attachments that the one identity had and say, okay, I got as far as I could with that story. It's time to reset without killing myself. Beautiful. Oh. What a journey. Yeah. It resonates. It resonates so hard with me. So, I mean, like I, I'm just in that process right now of, of, of letting it land and, and, and then the calling will come to, to, okay, it's going to be the legal change. It's going to be the full noise and go through all of that. I mean, yeah, uh, I, I, I think it probably would be a little bit, I mean, you haven't legally changed it again. Have you since Bravo? Is it still Bravo is your legal name? Yeah, just, just legally change yeah. it once. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I'm guessing that was a hell of a process. Not really. I mean, okay. you just go to birth, deaths, and marriages. Mm. I paid $75. <laughs> I put in a form. Um, and then they give you the 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 deed poll kind of change of name. And then yep. you just have to go through the admin of like going to the bank, getting your passport changed, getting all the duck. So it's a bit of a hassle, but I think the main thing is the social shift. And yes. Facebook is an amazing way to do that so that your friends start to call you that. And maybe you move overseas. Like I timed it when I became Atlas. It also was a particular time when I met a lot of new people. I was traveling. So I'd introduce mm. myself in new circles as Atlas. But then because we're so online, when I had the name change on Facebook, everyone just started to associate with me. I don't think it would have been as successful if I had kept it on Facebook as a certain way. So I think it's all about that social shift where your, your community starts to identify you as that. And that's the way they kind of reinforce the new storyline. Mm. All the juiciness from that story. <laughs> no, I, uh, I was looking forward to asking you about that, actually, just because I really want, I knew you had a, a good journey with it. I'm just in that journey right now. And, uh, and yeah, it's all going to be a beautiful thing, beautiful timing. And just, uh, I love the, I love the aspect of just, just you've gone to the point of your attachments and it's just like, well, you can just let them go. And then you create the new character, you know, but, or you integrate the old self into the new self and you can just move forward, you know? That's the thing that I realized is that even though you think you're burying all the dreams, 
the ones that are innately you, they return. Yes. And I've definitely felt that some of Bravo Child's dreams and goals have returned to Atlas, um, but not all of them. And so I think that for me, that's part of the letting go. Never fear of letting go. You'll never be robbed of or bereft of things which are innately you and essential to your path. And I think that's also part of the trust. So yeah, you change identity, but it'll come through in a new guise. And you go, oh, I remember you from that last identity. You, mm. Okay, you're you're real, you're here. Okay, and now I can maybe achieve you when maybe all the other false goals are getting in the way of the true goal. Oh, that's beautiful, brother. That's amazing. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up a bit. Uh, we could be here all night, but hey, brother, where, um, where can people find you? Where can people find you on for your open world? Where can they follow you? Where can they watch your incredible life, your beautiful download lives, all of the good stuff? Where can they find you, brother? Atlas Talisman, check Atlas Talisman out on Twitter. Um, sometimes like on Instagram, there's a underscore between Atlas and Talisman. Um, you can go to the website, openworldtheater.com. Um, both spellings work, E-R or R-E. I generally go with the R-E, but yeah, that's probably the best way to, to follow. Definitely on Facebook as well, I do lives. Um, and if you want to really start to play uh, me as a human avatar, um, I haven't had it active for a while, but on Twitch, there's an account called The Human Avatar, which will also be you being able to play me as a human avatar. Um, but yeah, particularly because I'm in Web3 and crypto, Twitter is such a main platform. So yeah, follow me there at Atlas Talisman, one word, to see the next story that I live. Beautiful, brother. We'll put all these in the show notes as well. And um, yeah, we're all, we're all jumping onto those extra social media. So we'll ensure we uh, we jump on and share and, and just do all the good things that all brothers and community do. Thank you so much for having me and for, yeah, being interested in this dialogue. And I really hope that um, people that listen to it take the reverence mm. for the conversation to sit down and kind of yeah reflect on, on the journey that they're undergoing. I think that we are robbed of that initiation. We don't have spaces for pilgrimages and coming of age. So yeah, hopefully a little of these seeds encourage you to, to take the stillness away from the incessant noise and come back to that intuitive autodidactic space uh, to release you across the blocks so we no longer have to avoid and we can finally come into that true state of openness when we face what is beautiful brother beautiful i, th I think people are going to be taking that away even me personally just being part of the conversation um have, have had some uh, little nuggets of wisdom drop in and just a constant well just a, a subtle reminder of the quest the subtle reminder of the play the ability that we have to just weave our own life and have it unfold for us but also unfold it as well um so it was beautiful by the beautiful conversation beautiful to to hear you just drop genius <laughs> thank you so much brother wanted to be here Beautiful, brother. We thank you for your time. And uh, you know what? There can always be a part two, brother, because there's always plenty more. We can co-create. We can do the things. I know you're setting up a podcast. Let us jump on there. Let us bring our genius. And let's just yes. uh, let's keep this going, brother. we gotta, we got to light this world on fire. That's what we're here for. We're all here for it. All the way, baby. Awesome. Thank you very much, brother. And to you listening, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we appreciate you. And uh, yeah, we will see you all next week. See you later, everybody.